Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm here with another special episode of our podcast in which you'll hear a recent conversation hosted by the Center for a New American Security about the ongoing war in Ukraine. Our conversation comes one week into Russia's assault on Ukraine, and indeed, things appear to be moving in a darker direction. To provide an update on where things stand one week into the crisis, I took part in a conversation on Friday, March 4th, with three CNAS experts, Richard Fontaine, Mike Kaufman, and Jeff Edmonds. We discussed changes in Russia's military operations and approach to Ukraine, how the conflict might unfold, including scenarios for how it could end, and political dynamics inside Russia, and that might be shaping how Putin responds to Western actions. Here's our conversation. Good morning, everyone, and welcome uh, to another uh, special event at CNES on the war in Ukraine and what is coming next. I'm Richard Fontaine, CEO of the Center for New American Security. Uh, Many of you were able to join us a week ago today as we reviewed the situation in its early hours. Here we are a week later, And the world has seen so far how things have developed with its initial plans for a quick operation dashed. Russian forces have steadily increased their assault on Ukrainian uh, government, military, and population centers, including uh, in civilian areas and major cities. Uh, Ukrainians of all stripes are resisting. And in our discussion today, we'll take a look at the military situation and where uh, things are likely to go from here. Um, There's also been some astonishing developments on the geopolitical front. Much of the world is acting quickly to disconnect Russia from globalization's benefits, trade, technology, travel, financial transactions. The sanctions put on Russia are severe. They're sweeping. Europe has been responding in security ways as well, with Germany announcing a major new boost to defense spending, the EU moving to provide weapons to Ukraine, Finland and Sweden openly talking about possible NATO membership. So events are moving fast, both inside Ukraine and outside, and the effects on Europe, on US policy toward Russia and the region, and American foreign policy uh, more broadly are are pretty profound. So to discuss where things are and where they're going, we will again have three uh, great experts with us. Andrea Kendall-Taylor is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at CNES. Jeff Edmonds is an adjunct senior fellow at CNAS and serves in CNA's Russia Studies Program and was director for Russia on the National Security Council staff. And Mike Kaufman is also a CNAS adjunct senior fellow, and he is the Russia Studies Research Program Director at CNA. Uh, He's a specialist in the Russian Armed Forces. Um, So as we have done before, I will uh, start the discussion. If you've got questions, as those of you who are tuning in, uh, please put them in the Q&A box and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, and Mike, I'd like to start with you with maybe just kind of a situation report of what you are seeing in terms of the latest uh, situation on the ground in Ukraine. Um, there's various levels of reporting, some talking about the Russians being stymied, other talking about them advancing. Um, and maybe you can give us a sense of where things stand right now. Sure. So both are probably true. In some areas, they've uh, been stymied in their progress and Ukrainians have mounted counterattacks. In the other areas, they've continued to advance and make progress on the ground. I think after the first four days, you saw Russian forces make adjustments and uh, start to actually leverage much more firepower, reorganize, resupply. Then we saw a series of further Russian uh, advances and attacks in uh, March 1st and 2nd. I think that they've run into a lot of difficulties in the north, outside of Kiev. There's been a lot of, been a lot of urban combat in the outskirts. They've not made tremendous progress. Uh, they have made some progress in the northeast towards the capital, and they've also made some progress around Kharkiv, the main city. They've dramatically increased barrages and shelling of some urban outskirts. Um, you know, remains to uh, to be seen what their real intentions towards Kharkiv are, if they intend to storm the city or if they've sort of been punitively shelling it to try to show other Ukrainian cities what happens if you don't surrender. Uh, in the south, there's been fierce fighting outside Nikolaev. They were able to largely take your son. Their challenges are uh, first logistical. They keep advancing pretty far down the road and then they have to pause. They don't have the supplies in order to, uh, to sustain the troops. 
There are huge problems with morale. I've seen over the past week, particularly in the Northeast around Harkov, but a few other areas, uh, small scale evidence of desertion of equipment just being abandoned by Russian troops. I think there are in fact some conscripts and definitely some reservists in these units. They are fundamentally disgruntled. As I said before, they didn't know that they were going to be sent to war. They're not sufficiently supplied for this fight. The whole thing is terribly organized. Uh, and, and you're definitely seeing equipment abandoned um, that there's nothing wrong with. It's not broken down. They're not out of fuel. Just, it's very clear that they've left their kit and and uh, run off because um, they just they, they realize that they've, they've, they've been essentially deceived or, or what have you. Um, we've probably seen a turning point, unfortunately, yesterday in Russian use of aviation. You're starting to see sporadic, much more increasing use of Russian air power in the last couple of days uh, and, and bombing of of uh, particularly in urban areas where Russian troops enter contact and greater use of attack helicopters, uh, increasing use of artillery, multiple launch rocket systems and the like. So sort of some of my predictions, at least from last week, are coming true that as Russian forces become frustrated, start to take casualties, they're going to revert to much heavier use of firepower. This is especially going to be in, in urban warfare environments. Um, beyond that, Ukrainian forces are holding. Uh, you can see that, but there, there are big challenges. You know, Mariupol's encircled de facto down in the southeast. Uh, fighting continues outside Kherson. It looks like Russian forces may be gearing up for amphibious landing outside Odessa. Uh, we haven't seen it yet, but it definitely looks like they're preparing to do something along those lines. And there's more Russian military power trickling into the fight. So that's how it's been going. Uh, Russians have lost a number of aircraft and helicopters uh, in, the, in, in this battle, but they, they have quite a bit of military power and capability deployed around Ukraine. And this is kind of still uh, just the fight getting uglier, as I predicted, and, and still in my view, that I think some of the worst things in this war are yet to come. And Mike, what about the uh, 40 mile, the numbers seem to vary in the reporting convoy of Russian uh, armored vehicles and tanks that's uh, been sitting for several days, uh, making very little progress north of Kiev. What do you make of its lack of progress? And what do you make of the the potential blow that that could inflict on on the city. Sure. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it is a 40 mile convoy. I think the media kind of ran off of that story. I think it is a series of different convoys and units spread over a pretty long stretch of road. I think it's a large number of battalion tactical groups. Uh, Ukrainians have blown quite a few bridges and there's quite a bit of uh, urban combat at the sort of tip's edge of that of that force. So I think the biggest challenge they've had is they're essentially pushing with two large pincer movements towards the Ukrainian capital. And they are a bit stuck bringing up logistics and also bridging equipment. That's a fairly narrow road. You get vehicles that break down or whatnot. You have to push them out. So I think these are the challenges the Russian military has had. Ukrainian force mounted some counterattacks yesterday a couple, uh, a couple points of uh, the convoy. I haven't seen evidence to, to see which way some of those fights went. Uh, they're also pushing, you know, around Cherniv in the east, on the eastern side of it. So that effort seems a bit stalled, but I, I wouldn't jump to conclusions as to as to what the future there holds, because they, I think they clearly are going to progress on trying to make a large assault on Kiev. And this has, to me, very ominous echoes of sort of Grozny in 1999, all right, of the two pincers moving towards Grozny in 99, ponderously slowly, but nonetheless intending to conduct a very large uh, uh, urban assault on the city. Jeff, let me go to you. I mean, if this looks like Grozny 99, then the population is, it's hard to, it's going to be catastrophically bad for the, for the population. So do you expect um, a, a large increase in um, aerial bombardment and, uh, and rockets, or even the declaration of a, almost a free fire zone after a civilian evacuation um, kind of a la Grozny 99? I don't know that it would be a free fire zone. I think as resistance falls back into the city, I do think that the Russians will be targeting um, where the resistance is in the city. That being said, as more resistance builds in the city, more of the areas will be targeted by Russian forces. And so I, I don't think I wouldn't quite classify it as a free, free fire zone, but I do think much of the city is going to be targeted because that's where the Russians are going to believe the actual resistance is. And what, Jeff, what do you make of the the reports that the uh, Ukrainian Air Force is still flying and that uh, air defenses are still at least to some degree operating? Um, if these reports are accurate, 
I think it would be fairly astonishing to most people to think that this far into the fight that uh, they're still able to get planes in the air and conduct air operations and that uh, uh, their air defense uh, system hasn't been fully suppressed. I'm not seeing a lot as far as like decisive um, Ukrainian air operations. I think they're extremely limited. I think the the airspace is contested in the sense that the lower level airspace is contested by by man pads. And I think that's why they're still, you know, agree with Mike, we're seeing more of their high end stuff come in. Um, But I think there's also a resistance or a risk aversion to losing um, high end Russian aircraft to man pads and things of that nature. So, you know, at this point and without additional aircraft coming in, I don't think the the Ukrainian Air Air Force is going to play much more of a role in this conflict. And Jeff, do you, um, uh, how do you, what do you make of the, uh, of what Mike was talking about with abandoned vehicles and uh, reports that Russian troops didn't know where they were going and, 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 you know, things like that. I mean, does that all add up to uh, something? I think it does. I think it does. I think Mike's absolutely right. And what I find interesting is that, you know, if, if private Edmonds and private Smith decide that they just don't want to be part of this war and run off, that's one thing. But when you find that when that extends to a crew and then that extends to a number of vehicles, it's a more it's a more broadly shared view. And so, like, if I were, you know, a commander on the ground, that would be, you know, I wouldn't worry so much about the, the onesies and twosies that take off or whatever. But when you have, you know, numbers of vehicles like a, basically a small unit that has departed the field um, that becomes real concerning and so i think it's it's indicative of a it's probably indicative of a, of a deeper um trend and, and i don't want to i'm not suggesting that the russian military is just going to up and you know revolt and, and head back to russia but i think this might be pretty um, um systematic in a sense and i think uh, a real problem that the russians are gonna have to deal with um andrea let me go to you um so one of the things that has been so hard to discern is precisely what Putin's objective is in taking this action. And um, as we've watched this before the fight began, many people said, well, it's really in the east and it's done Donbass. And once the fight began, maybe it's he's aiming at the partition of the country and the Russian speaking places in the east plus Kiev or something. And now uh, it looks more ambitious still. So wh- what do you see as the ambition here and how uh, Russia's going about trying to achieve it? Well, I think you're right, Richard. I think you just kind of described, you know, the evolution in my thinking about Russia, what Russia was after. I mean, it initially started off where I all thought, and I think it was a widely held assumption or assessment that Russia was looking to kind of do get to Kiev very quickly, decapitate the government and install the puppet regime. Um, It obviously hasn't played out that way for the reasons that Mike and Jeff have talked about. Um, But I think when we were trying to, you know, before this war kicked off, the other kind of plausible scenario was that Russia was looking to partition Ukraine. And I think we even talked about last week, you know, the Russian state television was putting up maps of Ukraine and they were going through this narrative of, oh, look, it was these Soviet or imperial leaders that have um, given away these pieces of Ukraine. And so you could see a picture where it looked as if they were moving towards partition that included parts of Ukraine that were east of the river. Um, but just as you said, Richard, it does seem like that's further evolved. And when you hear President Putin, some of his recent speeches in the last two days in particular, it seems that he is really intent. You know, he keeps using this phrase over and over, denazification. He keeps, I mean, he really has doubled down on this narrative that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. Um, and so it does seem like they have um, shifted and maybe it's because they are recognized that, you know, this kind of puppet scenario isn't going to be plausible because no Russian backed leader is really going to have legitimacy among the Ukrainian people. So it's hard to know if, you know, if, if it, this is an evolution and Putin really doubling down, but it does seem we're moving in that direction. And it is notable, um, French President Emmanuel Macron spoke to Putin yesterday, and that was the sense that they walked away with. Um, that Putin, you know, ha- is doubling down. He isn't letting his foot off the gra- uh, get off the gas, and that we are kind of looking at this kind of incomplete subjugation. I think was even a phrase that maybe came out came out of the readout um, from the French. So it does seem like we're moving in that direction. I mean, it's an open question back to Mike and Jeff about whether or not they actually have the military capability to actually accomplish that objective. So I'd, I'd be really curious to hear both Mike and Jeff talk about if that is the objective, whether or not um, they actually have the capability to do that. 
Yeah, let's go to Mike and then maybe to Jeff and and uh, maybe you can give us your your sense of that and then whether you also are seeing the same sort of scope of Russian ambitions. I mean, is is are we witnessing in the final instance a war of conquest that is going to attempt to bring Russian troops that will it, the, the limited advance will only be up to a NATO border, essentially. Um, so, Mike, let me go to you and then to Jeff. I think the Russian objectives are still maximalist. They see the capital as the center of gravity in Zelensky's administration. I think, um, personally, I, I'm not sure it ever made sense to me, but I definitely now don't see how the military means they have can achieve their desire for local ends. I honestly think that this, this entire this entire operation is now shot. I think they can achieve military objectives, right? But there are definitely areas where they can win. And maybe they're going to end up occupying large parts of Ukraine, or maybe they're going to end up partitioning the country. Maybe that's the worst case scenario in some cases. But I don't really see at this point how their political objectives can be achieved. The military objectives, they're clearly adjusting a week into it. That, that part I can see. Um, but but from the outset, this made no sense. It was based on terrible war optimism and completely delusional assumptions about Ukraine. It was political leadership that never intellectually evolved from 2014 and really thought that they could just come into Ukraine. And most Ukrainian military wouldn't resist. The Ukraine had little sense of statehood. It's sort of they learned nothing from 2014 and 2015 and attempting this. And so now what's happening, I'll close on this. I mean, they, they are leveling parts of Kharkiv and Mariupol. Right. So if they ever if they intend to put in some kind of pro-Russian regime, it's never going to last five seconds in this country without a heavy Russian occupation. Right. Their prospects of, um, you know, achieving anything in terms of Ukrainian public sentiment is gone. Absolutely gone. In fact, if anything, now you see a lot of partisan groups, you know, attacking Russian units and Russian convoys across these long stretches of road because Russian supply lines and Russian troops are so overextended. And that's why I can continue. They've already guaranteed, I think, themselves that outcome, no matter what happens in a potential future occupation. Mike, let me stay with you for just one second before I go to Jeff on this point, because I guess for me, this is the thing I just cannot get my head around, because if they replace the regime, either the Russian troops go home, in which case you have a popular uprising against the new regime and you're right back where you started, or you occupy the country indefinitely, and that's something, and, and you elicited an insurgency, and this is something that the U.S. knows a little bit about, how hard it is to, to occupy a country indefinitely when there's insurgency, and numbers matter, uh, and sentiment matters, and things like that. So, you know, if the plan becomes, well, we need to occupy the country for X amount of time, we're assuming a lot here, but, but if we look at that scenario, I mean, do they have even close to the numbers that they would need to try to do something like that? Or, frankly, the the touch to be able to uh, occupy a country that clearly would not want to be occupied by Russians? Yeah, I'm I'm really not sure that's the case. Uh, and but but look, as always, these things are these things are pretty contingent. A lot of times when we do numbers out of this, it's based on our own sort of coin and CT experiences. Right. And there's there's things that are generalizable from that, but Ukraine's not Iraq and Afghanistan either. So yeah. my my own view of it is that no. And most importantly, they don't have the resources. They thought they could do it quickly and cheap, and they don't have the resources. Russian economy is going to be in shambles in the uh, coming weeks, and um, that I, I don't see any. I, I don't see how they're going to be able to sustain this. So in, in in fact, I I personally suspect that given the sustainment issues they're having for this large effort. Right as it is, you know they're probably going to try to seek some pause if they don't achieve main military aims in this conflict in the coming weeks. At least a ceasefire, so they can regroup and reorganize. I Meaning that won't be the end of the war, but they'll try to push for a ceasefire if they don't get where they want to get within the next couple of weeks to reorganize this entire uh, shambolic effort. Mm. Jeff, let me bring you in on this. Yeah, no, I, when you know we were looking at this before the actual invasion started, a lot of us looking at military capabilities kind of drew this line west of Kiev down to Odessa as the limit of advance, because that's what made sense, right? And I think we were overly generous in, in, in projecting pragmatic military planning on, on the Russians. Um, and I, you know, that being said, the language coming out of, I mean, you, like, like Andrea said, from, from the, you know, the, the Putin-Macron conversation, Lavrov, others, and even some of the intellects that were quiet during the first few days of the invasion have now started to come out with this articulation of, of transitioning Ukraine into something else, which to me just means destroying Ukraine as a nation state. 
And I, so I think they still have, I think they're still throwing dumb after dumb in the sense that they might, they might actually think that if they can still grab key, if they can still bring that under control, the rest of it just falls apart. That's what I think they're betting on and why they're throwing everything at Kiev. I think they underestimate the ability of, you know, these types of resistance movements to actually, you know, relocate geographically either to Lviv or something else and to, to perhaps leave the capital. And so I think it's far from over. And I think it's it's rather questionable whether they can push all the way to the Polish border if that's, you know, the, the kind of maximalist goal they're actually going for. Mm. Andrea, let me go to you. Um, what do you make of the, I guess, debate now about whether Putin, the pragmatist, at least someone who has core beliefs, but will weigh up the costs and benefits of some proposed action has moved into someone who is unable to do this. Um, and that is one of the explanations for the kind of um, lack of obvious logic to the military operation, given the political goals that they've set out for themselves. I mean, do you see, you've watched Putin for a long time. Um, do you see a different actor here than we have seen in the past? I know. I mean, Putin, I mean, all the things that we know about Putin are still there, but I think they're kind of amplified and aggravated by COVID and other things. And I guess what I mean by that is we've always known, you know, that he's a risk taker. I mean, you just look at, you know, the, the and the brazenness, um, you know, the poisoning of Navalny, putting a poison in his underpants and all these things. So he, I mean, he's always been a kind of a brazen actor. But I think, you know, that what's changed, and, and this is something that is true of a lot of other longtime authoritarian leaders, is that like the longer that you are in office and when you are this highly personalized type of authoritarian regime, the more prone you are to making mistakes. And I really think that's kind of where what 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 is happening. I mean, I think this is still Putin, but uh, after 22 years in power and after having a highly personalized political system, after being so isolated for you know two years with COVID, I think he is just flat out miscalculating. And Mike raised a really good point there about his inability to learn from what happened in 2014 and 2015 in Ukraine. I mean, if you think about then when they went into 2015, Putin had this misguided belief then that there was they were going to unleash an outpouring of popular support for Russia in the east of the country, which clearly never came to fruition. And the fact that he is unable to kind of learn from his past mistakes, I think, says a lot about kind of his mentality and type of leadership. And certainly now with this kind of hyper personalization that we see, to me, this really is about kind of miscalculation, making mistakes. And I think, you know, people, you know, is he unhinged? That's a question to me. It seems like he's just really doubling down on the strategy because of the risks that are involved. I mean, one thing we do know uh, with personalized regimes too is that they tend to exit power violently. Um, you know, one thing that helps explain the type of transition is what a leader can expect in their post-tenure fate, right? Democracies, uh, you're a democratic leader, you retire peacefully and you have your, you know, mansion somewhere and you kind of peacefully ride off into the sunset. Well, we, you know, all, all of these stories, people say over and over, he watched the overthrow of Gaddafi and him being drugged through the streets. I mean, I think that's what he imagines for what could happen to him if he does leave power, particularly in a, a moment like this. And so he is going to dig in, double down. And that's something that I think we have to be very aware of as we're thinking about obviously trying to force um, opposition to confront Putin. But we also need to be really careful about unintended risks and, and escalation. So I guess I think that's where we is. It's hard to say if he's unhinged. To me, it's a kind of embattled personalist dictator who's fearful of what happens next, recognizing that if this goes badly for him, um, you know, he could be jailed, imprisoned, or, kill, or killed. Um, and so he's doubling down um, on, on a losing strategy. I liked Jeff's um, statement about throwing dumb at dumb, um, but that's kind of where we are. So Andre, does that um, suggest that at least in as an official narrative, we should stay far away in the United States from these kind of regime change in Russia narratives that we're here at, you know, I saw Senator Graham had a tweet about somebody just needs to take this guy out and, you know, things like that. I mean, is that would this could these things have the effect of cornering uh, someone who already feels paranoid and like this is the kind of situation in which he would be personally vulnerable that he's sort of worried about for a long time with protests on the streets, the world imposing sanctions and cutting Russia off from everything, maybe the military operation not going according to plan. 
And now, you know, here come the Americans and they're sort of talking about uh, regime change in Russia. Or um, is it the kind of thing where, you know, we should be talking about those things because this is the moment when, you know, at great potential personal peril, we see people taking to the streets in Russia. They don't like what's happening um, in Ukraine and or in Russia itself. So I understand the sentiment of regime change, particularly in this moment in time. Um, you know, I it is definitely clear that I don't see a good way through this while Putin is still there. Um, and I think that's kind of where everyone is. I think that helps explain why we've seen the Europeans shift so dramatically and what they've been willing to do in order to confront Putin. I think that is a widely held sentiment at this point. But I think we have to be very careful about having an explicit policy of regime change. Um, I think we need to be a lot more careful and calibrated and calculated with the way, with the kind of public rhetoric um, it, I, because of the risks. I mean, it's just as you say, I do worry, you know, we know that the number one thing that Putin cares about is the persistence um, of the regime. And that's goal number one. And if he does feel that his if he his regime and more personally his personal safety is at risk, then I think we are gonna, you know, you really run the risk that he will double down and do things that are relatively extreme in order to preclude that outcome. Um, you just you know think about what you know Assad has been willing to do in Syria and other things when these leaders feel cornered and battled, when regime change is at stake, and when I think that they rightly calculate, you know, that their very lives are at risk. They control the instruments of power and they're therefore willing to use them in order to protect themselves. And so I definitely understand the sentiment of regime change. We do see Russians going to great risk, um, personal risk to to speak out with a war and with a leader who they, you know, they disagree with. Um, but we have to be, I think, just careful um, and calculated and calibrated in the way that we continue to approach Putin so that we can offer a way out of this Um you know, it is useful that Macron is still talking to Putin. There, you know, we. I, I, I think that the only way out of this is through diplomacy. I don't think it's going to be settled on the battlefield. So it's either at the diplomatic table or it's with some sort of post-Putin future. And I think we want to be pushing towards the diplomatic off-ramps to the extent that we can because of the really significant risks that would be accompanied, I think, with a regime change route and kind of adopting that as an official policy or discourse. Yeah, in a few minutes, I want to talk specifically about off-ramps and how this may or may not end. Jeff, let me uh, go to you. I saw you nodding at when Andrea was talking, so maybe you have something to add on that. And also, maybe you can address the nuclear alerting. Uh, my understanding is that uh, the the rhetoric and the, the decision to put Russian forces to increase the alert level of Russian nuclear forces has not been accompanied by anything moving or anything that we've seen. Um, right, that's that's my understanding. And the original the original um, alert was actually for their deterrent forces, which include conventional and nuclear. So it's and even some Russian colleagues I've talked to don't really understand what that means um, in, in a technical sense. Um, I do think you know if this conflict and I said this before, if, if this conflict expands to you know encompass a, a NATO Russia war, then obviously we really have to worry about that. But Putin's pretty fast to um, reference nuclear weapons as a reminder of of you know the dangers of, of tangling with russia and and on him i mean i would just agree it, something sticks with me and i've used it a couple of times since then that andrea said during the last episode and that's you know these these regimes seem somewhat stable until suddenly they aren't and we're not going to you know if this happens it's going to happen organically i don't think calls for regime change out from us is actually very helpful at all um and i think you know if this happens it's going to happen organically and it's not something we're going to see coming i don't think um, because it's not going to be something that he's going to necessarily see coming. And so I think we just have to be cautious on that part. I will say, you know, a month ago, if you had asked me if there was a chance Putin was going to exit in a year or so, or sometime in the, in the relatively near future, I would have said highly likely not. And I'm reevaluating that uh, the longer this goes on. So let's say that there is an exit. This is just speculation. But what could that look like? I mean, are we talking about a popular, you know, un unsustainable protest on the streets of Moscow indefinitely and Putin realizes this is not going to work anymore? Or, you know, is there or is this a Khrushchev kind of thing where, you know, suddenly the leader, the, the folks around the leader decide they've got to re replace this guy? I mean, what, what are the 
avenues for this? Do we have any sense? I don't know that there is one for him because in, 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 you know, my understanding, if he's looking out the window and he's, you know, there's mass hysteria or, or he feels he's losing control of the state because of the, the state of the economy and run on banks or, or what have you, he doesn't look at that and say, this is a policy failure on my part. I need to exit because what I tried to do didn't work. Right. It's just this is the culmination of the actions the West has taken to get rid of me. And so I need to escalate or I need to do something. But I, I just don't think I mean, he's a master of killing roadmaps. So I, I, just, I mean, off ramps. And so, you know, I just don't I don't see a situation where he's like, oh, OK, it didn't work. I'm not popular anymore. I'm going to exit. I just I don't think that's a viable scenario. Can I jump in, Richard? So, I mean, I think it's not like an either or. I don't think it's going to be an elite led thing or a popular driven thing. I think when you have like a long time kind of established authoritarian regime like Putin's, it has to be both. And so this fact that you're seeing some sort of signs of elite elites speaking out, the Luke Oil announcement um, yesterday speaking out against the war was really interesting. Deripaska selling the Chelsea Football Club and donating the proceeds to the victims of the war in Ukraine. I mean, these these kinds of um, public displays of elite disagreement um, seem different to me um, after watching for a very long time, different than what you even saw in 2011 and 2012, where there were large scale protests. So but there's a, a like symbiotic relationship, I think, between what's happening at the elite level and what's happening at the public level. So the elite statements, I think, also to the extent that Russians are aware of them, can help create a more permissive environment for protests. Again, it comes back to those informative signals. I don't think that the elite will move on Putin absent of a lot of people in the streets. And that is also, you know, I've looked at how longtime authoritarian leaders like Putin leave. When you've been in power after 22, 20 years in power, that the likelihood of being ousted by the elite making a move against a leader absent mass mobilization is extremely small. It was 10% of all leaders who were like Putin um, exited that way. Protest was a lot higher. Um, and so I think it, you'll, so the elite are likely to be kind of right, right. They'll be the ones who actually have to knock Putin off because as Jeff said, he's not going to see people out on the streets and kind of sh shrink away and say, gosh, I'm not popular. I better call it a day. Um, it's going to be about either he'll make the call to tell his security services to fire on protesters and they won't do it. Um, or there'll be some sort of in the face of mass mobilization, I think the elite then move to remove them from office. I don't, but I think within a regime like Putin's, I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think it's going to have to be kind of a confluence of both. Andrea, do you think that looking at Russian history, it tells us uh, anything about the likelihood or lack thereof of this? I'm just thinking that, you know, so it was the attempted internal coup against Khrushchev, which didn't work. Then there was the one that worked. That's the only one I can think of that ever did, at least in the past 100 years. I mean, Stalin probably wasn't poisoned and, you know, and died a natural death. Uh, you know, Khrushchev was was taken out of leadership. But, you know, Brezhnev and Dropov, Chernenko, Gorbachev, I mean, there was the failed coup against Gorbachev. That didn't work. Um, so there's not a, no matter how bad things have gotten, over a long period of time, there's not a great tradition of changing leaders uh, who wish not to be changed. But is that or is that in any way rele relevant to what we're seeing now? Or are we just in terra incognita? I mean, so I mean, we're in such a different place now, given like, you know, this war. I mean, it, this really is just such a unprecedented kind of situation, I think, in Russia is such an unprecedented situation. If you had asked me before the war, I would have said Putin most likely will die of natural causes in office. He'll stay in until he dies. I um, mean, you look at the other leaders, Russian leaders who were the longest uh, serving, they all died in office, Stalin, etc. So, I mean, and, and that is also borne out in the empirical record when you look at these longtime authoritarian regimes, death in office is the most likely. So, I mean, we're talking about situations where Putin could be unseated. It's, it is still plausible, although less likely, as Jeff said, you know, a week ago, um, that Putin will be able to ride this out and he will remain in office until he dies of natural causes. That is, a, that is still, I think, maybe even the most likely scenario. Um, but again, his hold on power is significantly weaker than it was a week ago. And then in my mind, if if it's not death in office, if he's not able to write it out, then it's going to be some sort of, I think it will be accompanied by mass mobilization because it's very hard for me to imagine the elite moving without that kind of um, motivation from the public. I mean, again, like think about the, the elite too. It's, 
you want to be you there. I think their finger is going to be in the wind. I mean, the, the one of the reasons Putin has managed to last so long is there's never been a viable alternative. There is no alternative center of gravity around which the elite can coalesce, much less the public. But I think right now people's are, you know, their finger is going to be in the wind trying to gauge the political breezes. And you want to you want to always, if you're a member of the elite, want to be on the winning side. And that's why these things happen so quickly. Think about Tokayev in Kazakhstan. He pushed Nazarbayev out and everyone rallied behind him. You don't want to be the odd man out. That's a dangerous place to be. And so, as Jeff said, I don't think we're going to see it coming. It's like these, it happens slowly, slowly, slowly until it happens really quickly. And I think that's, you know, what we're going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Let me go to a few questions from um, folks who are tuning in. So, um, and Mike, maybe I can put this one to you. Mark has a question about European countries talking about sending more weapons to Ukraine. Are there still ways of getting weapons into Ukraine? And are the Russians trying to prevent that? Yeah, I mean, you can still get weapons into Ukraine via ground transport. There's a lot of Western parts of Ukraine the Russian forces haven't entered and don't control. And that's the easiest way to get weapons into Ukraine. I don't see anybody flying into Ukraine necessarily. That's pretty unlikely at this point. Um, but I, I think most of the weapons you need are fundamentally man-portable. You need Ukraine's need logistics and you need more of those simpler capabilities. Uh, some of the other ideas that are out there are a bit wild, like MiG-29s and fourth-generation aircraft. That's not, that's not going to do a lot of good to be perfectly honest uh just my own view i mean there's there's also possibilities of flying uh some aircraft from poland but i think russian forces are probably going to respond to that and try to lock down the western part of ukraine in terms of airspace there's a lot we haven't seen them do yet that they that they could richard can um, i ask one question yeah. that's related to that I'd, i'm curious what both jeff and mike would say i mean one of the scenarios and i think maybe we talked about this in the last session too was like how this could spill over Right. And if we do see kind of a steady supply line coming in from places like Poland, Mike and Jeff, like, do you, do you think that the, that the, that Putin, the, that he would be willing to kind of strike those supply lines and potentially strike into NATO member country like Poland? I don't know that he would intentionally strike into Poland. I think insofar as he would be willing to use the Air Force in Western Ukraine to strike those things, I think he'd feel free to strike them Jeff, you're breaking up. Um, so we'll mm -hmm. let's go, Jeff. Let's go back to you when you have you, a uh, connection restored. Uh, Mike, what's your take on this? Um, they've already threatened to interdict any supplies coming into Ukraine. It's going to be challenging for them to do because their best way of doing that will probably be by aircraft and helicopters, unless they want to try to create a whole separate axis of advance. They haven't done that yet. Uh, there's a lot of danger to them trying to interdict it because of man portable air defense systems. So they have challenged, they're going to have challenges just trying to interdict it with uh, limited use of air assets. I don't see them striking in, into Poland or anything like that because the last thing they would want to do, right, is to actually give give NATO the the rationale and the motivation to create some kind of fly zone to have a greater intervention. I don't think they're going to do that. Jeff, you're back. Um, we lost you a few words into. Oh, your... sorry about that. But go go ahead. No, I I, I apparently missed. I think Mike Mike covered. I was just saying. I, I do think he would he would feel the you know the that he had would be justified in striking him in in Western Ukraine. I don't think he's going to intentionally go into Poland. But obviously, the more action happens closer to Poland, the more you have the risk of unintended escalation. Uh. There's another question from Johannes. Uh, can we provide an incentive and publicly appeal to Russian and potentially Belarusian soldiers to desert if we offer them asylum in Western Europe? As far as I know, West yesterday's EU directive didn't include refugees from third countries in the temporary residency. So is, is there uh, are there incentives that that could be provided to increase uh, the desertion rates that we've seen? Mike? Uh, I'm not sure how you're going to physically provide that incentive to them. Like, what, what, what is the means of communication you intend to use for these for these soldiers to give them these incentives? They're not reading Twitter. Uh, so just to be frank, uh, it potentially, yes. But right now, I think that the main incentive for Russian soldiers not to fight is the fact that how poorly the effort is organized and that they were clearly lied to when they sent to the border. All They, they believe they were going on training. And then they were pushed to the border and told nothing was going to happen. And then they were pushed across the border 
until they would be greeted as liberators. And the craziest thing about the initial operation is they really were driving around Ukraine like they were in their own country. If you actually look at Russian forces in the first couple of days, they were driving into Ukraine as though they didn't expect any opposition. And and sure enough, this, this whole effort began rapidly collapsing as they faced resistance. And I think many of them now, well, for the first couple of days, frankly, you know, didn't know what to do. That's why you saw so much equipment being abandoned and and uh, pockets of of desertions here and there. But um, is, is there something we create? I, I don't know how you communicate that to Russian soldiers, to be perfectly honest. I think I think that's frankly, if anything, on, on, on the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. I think Ukrainians actually have done a great job, a great job of managing the information environment and posting videos that they treat POWs really well. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of POW videos, and it's very clear that Ukrainians treat Russian POWs really well. And that's probably, that's going to be the best incentive you're going to see for soldiers to surrender. There's a question from Jay about the movement of Kazakh armed forces equipment by rail. Um, any indications of potential CSTO involvement in Ukraine? Jeff, um, you have anything on that? And you might uh, say a word on the latest on Belarusian participation, which seems to be in and out every day, depending on what the latest pronouncement is from Lukashenko and company. I would be very surprised if Kazakhstan or another CSTO organization got got heavily involved in this, especially after seeing the reaction from, I mean, that's a careful line that they have to to walk. I would just be surprised by that. I think the Belarusians are already complicit in this. I mean, it's, and I, you know, I know there were some, I don't know how confirmed they were. There were some reports of Belarusian helicopters being shot down in Northwestern Ukraine, in North of, of Kiev early, in early, early days. Um, but I think, like I said, I think Lukashenko gave up sovereignty for for some kind of security for himself, and so I, I think that if if the Russians want the Belarusians to you know take a larger role, they that they probably will. Um, Andrea, there's a question from Mika about uh, whether Russia is preparing for martial law. Any indicators? Um, so you, maybe you, I don't know if you've seen anything on that or have a thought. So I haven't seen anything confirmed other than like that was definitely a predominant message narrative going around on Twitter. And I had heard, you know, from people inside Russia that that seemed to be um, a rumor that was percolating around Russia, too. I mean, we have seen. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure if that is actually um, in the cards and and whether or not that's um, going to be imposed shortly. But I guess the broader point is that we are already seeing the authorities significantly step up repression inside Russia in response to this. So, you know, there were announcements about um, taking Echo Moskvi, one of the oldest independent Russian um, radio channels, off the air. Um, there's the Duma legislation that's been introduced that would give jail times up to 15 years for people who are reporting um, information that's not from quote unquote official sources. So i.e. anything that the Russians don't really want you talking about. Um, so so I think, you know, the broader point is that we are seeing and it's already had been happening too, right? For the year leading up to this crisis, Russia had already started cracking down. The Putin regime had started cracking down on um, Russian civil society, journalists, all sorts of things in a way that, um, you know, was has appears different than it had been in the past. And so this, again, we talked about what Putin is likely to do if he feels that his status is threatened. Um, this is exactly what we're talking about. And it seems to me that this is going to continue um, and we're moving in a really dark direction inside Russia in a way that's also really sad for all of the Russians there who don't support the war. I mean, we, you know, you, Richard, you talked about how much has happened in one week. And I don't know if we in this discussion yet have really reflected on that. But Russia also is not the country it was a week ago. And I think all of us in the Russia expert community are really grappling with that, trying to understand what that means I mean, it feels like we are moving in the direction of looking at Russia like an Iran or something like that, where it's a highly closed repressive regime that no longer has the capabilities that it had in the past. I think our heads are all spinning trying to understand what happens. But this repression piece is one of them, um, because for a long time there had been, you know, Putin has always been an authoritarian regime, but there had been freedoms online and other things, you know, it, Russia wasn't Iran, it wasn't North Korea, it wasn't Turkmenistan, and we are kind of very rapidly moving in that direction. And it is just astonishing and really sad to see. Mm. There's a question from Christoph. Maybe, Andre, you may have a 
uh, perspective on this. How do you assess the prospects for war crimes and investigations now that the International Criminal Court has become involved? I don't know if you, Andrea or, or Jeff or Mike, have uh, any thought on that. I probably don't. Um, but again, it kind of just it goes, you know, the, the ICC and highly personalist dictators. Again, if you're expecting that you're going to be tried for war crimes, these leaders, what we see time and time again is that, you know, dig in the heels, double down, and you better be sure that you can maintain power because if you don't, um, this is the future that awaits you. So it, it just to me, I mean, it's necessary to do. I understand, again, why it's being done. But when we think about the effect that it has on the incentives and the motivations for Putin and the regime, um, it is making it ever more important for them to use all means necessary to maintain power, because otherwise, you know, you'll be drug off to the ICC and, and again, jail, killed, imprisoned is the fates that they're thinking about. And so that is creating a lot of risks and should really inform our expectations for what the Putin regime might be capable of in order to maintain power. Um, let's talk for a minute about um, off ramps and potential end states. I mean, Mike, you were talking about the wrong assumptions that went into this, that Ukrainians would you know, sort of treat uh, Russian troops as liberators. Those are my words, not not yours. But uh, but, you know, also uh, that a, a quick strike and sending the government fleeing was sort of the skeleton's key that was going to unlock this and that uh, there could be some sort of uh, new political dispensation absent a long-term occupation. I guess the first question is, I mean, do you sense any learning over the past week with respect to these political objectives? Um, because if it is obvious to many uh, that this is going to be pretty hard to meet given the military uh, operations that have been conducted thus far, you either change the military operations, you change your political objectives. Um, they're changing the military operations, but do you see any sense that that Putin or or the Russians more generally are learning in in terms of their political objectives? I mean, do you think they'll they'll be something less than that what they intended a week ago? No, I don't see a change in the political objectives. I, I really don't. I I think that they're they're following through with us, and it's the military operation that I see changing on the ground. I think that they're probably rationalizing to themselves that there's far more nationalist resistance than they may have expected. Or alternatively, you know, I also hear inklings that Putin's really furious and probably maybe blames the military operation itself, which a lot of political leaders often blame the military because their own assumptions about the how they were trying to use force were completely wild um, or, or, or unfeasible. So it's one or the other, but I don't see the political aim changing in this in this conflict from Russian point of view. Uh, they're not. I mean, they, it, it, you can hear from when you when you listen to Putin talk that he has not changed any of the core objectives or his approach to Ukraine. So where does that take us in the next few weeks? Do you think if the political objectives remain the same, but are in your analysis unattainable given the military? Uh, operations, what what gives here? Uh, what takes us is that he wanted to achieve this cheaply and without a lot of effort or bloodshed and cost. Now that all that's impossible, I think he's going to try to achieve this in a very ugly and bloody fashion. And there's going to be much more brutal fighting, and they're really going to open up the spigot on the firepower they use, and we're going to see parts of entire cities level. That's how, that's how it's going to play out. And uh, believe me, this is the person who will see it through. That's the person who thought who saw through the second Chechen war. He saw through the Russian campaign in Syria. He will see it through. Anybody who remotely thinks he's not capable of leveling half of Kiev, I'll tell you. I, he is. So look at what's happening to Kharkov already. Yeah. Yeah. And Grozny and Aleppo and... Yeah, yeah look, at how, look at what's happening there in Mariupol. Like it's, it's I'm, I'm already seeing the sort of the turn. As I argued a couple of days into this war, saying I think Russian forces are going to uh, revert to the mean pretty quick after a couple of days, and and we're starting to see evidence of that. Jeff, uh, let me go to you. So let's say Mike is correct, and I think you largely agree with that uh, prognosis. It's still not clear that achieves your political objective. 
No, I don't. I agree with. I don't think he can. I think. I mean, if I'm, this is super speculative, right? But if I'm looking out to how this thing ends, it's going to culminate in something—a combination of economic ruin in Moscow, unable to achieve your political objectives in Ukraine. That's going to at some point come to a head, and there's going to be some kind of release of pressure in some way, shape, or form, whether that's an escalation with NATO or Putin goes. If I had to guess, it's going to. I think it's going to come to one of those things. I don't see this getting into some kind of, um, what do you call it, like a, like a stale conflict that just kind of goes on and on with the Russians indefinitely occupying parts of, of Kiev and propping up a government. I don't think that they can do that. I don't think the Russian economy can survive this. And so I think we're heading towards some kind of culminating point, um, whether that's in you know a couple months or the better part of a year is unclear. Uh, but I, I personally think that's the way this thing quote unquote, resolves itself. What do you mean by an escalation by NATO? Well, I think at some point, if the, if, if the argument would be the Russian economy is failing, I'm losing control of the state, that's warfare. You can call it economic warfare. It's just warfare. It's regime change by the West. I'm going to up the ante with the West. I'm going to actually, one way to do this, you would actually take some action that would elicit an Article 5 response intentionally. So that you, what you're basically saying is, look, you're going to remove these economic sanctions. You're going to stop trying to destroy my regime, or I'm just going to go to war with you with all of the trappings that, that comes with nuclear threats and everything else in the attempt to, to overescalate and get the West to back down. Like, okay, we want a nuclear war. Let's try to figure something out. Let's restore something to Moscow so it doesn't collapse. That would be the move. Um, that's that's the one one of the outcomes that has the clearest logic in my mind. Mm. Um, I would really hope that someone within the Russian regime would move on Putin before that happened. And obviously we don't yeah, know that. I, and for the reasons that I said, it seems unlikely, but that is just, it's so dark. I mean, I don't, and now I'll be curious what Jeff and Mike have to say. I mean, you know, when you have these longtime conflicts where, you know, if Russia can't achieve its objectives militarily, and obviously you can't, Ukraine can't expel Russian forces from their country, then it feels like the only way short of regime change in Moscow is would have to be through a negotiated settlement. And I guess I, you know, I don't know, obviously we're far away from that because we haven't seen Putin give and the Ukrainians are stu still doing well enough that they're not willing to make any concessions on Crimea or neutrality or demilitarization either. But you could imagine, I mean, you, you just think of these tragic conflicts that do go over an extended period of time if we do reach some sort of stalemate on the battlefield, maybe there would be some sort of room for a negotiated settlement. Maybe that's more likely if unfortunately Zelensky is moved from the equation and then you have a future leader who just in Ukraine wants to end the bloodshed and the casualties. So I, I, it's a, again, it, you're, you're not gonna get at it in a peaceful way as the negotiated settlement, it's going to be because it's been bloody and protracted and you've reached a stalemate on the battlefield. But when you look at how these kind of insurgencies are resolved, negotiated settlement is the most likely way. And again, they're miles apart currently, and it's going to take a long time to get there. But I do think a third way out is um, at, through a negotiated settlement. Someone will have to move. And, and maybe if there's more pressure on Putin domestically, that gets him to move a teeny tiny bit without Zelensky in Ukraine, or if just if the really the the kind of civilian loss is too high, may, you know, maybe the two sides inch a little bit closer in time and we can get to a negotiated settlement. Jeff or Mike, I don't know if either of you want to come in on that. Um, if not, Andrea, um, this is, you know, some of these scenarios are getting um, pretty dire pretty quickly. Um, what do you see as the is the role of Macron or or the West or or the United States in in a potential uh, off ramp or negotiated end to this? Or is do you think this is a Russian Ukrainian uh, move here? I mean, um, so far, everything has come to absolutely not as we know. Um, in terms of the, and in fact, uh, at least in retrospect, it seems like some of the diplomacy moved everyone backwards because there was a feeling of utter deception on the part of the Western Europeans who were going over to Moscow to chew over implementation of the Minsk protocol while Putin was planning and, 
to you know execute a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, but nevertheless, if there's going to be something uh, short of you know utter destruction, then potentially there is a diplomatic outcome to be had at some point. Although now it's not the point. It feels like where that's possible. So is this a Russian-Ukrainian move bilaterally, or do you think that this is a broader uh, diplomatic process or, or potential move that includes the United States or, or other countries? I think it's a Russia-Ukraine thing. Um, and, you know, we see that they're, I mean, they've had two rounds of talks now, and obviously they're not bearing fruit at this moment for all the reasons we've said. We wouldn't expect that, that negotiations are going to bear any fruit in the near term. Um, but to me, I mean, I don't see a huge role for the United States in Europe. It's important that we continue. I think it is a positive thing that Macron keeps talking to Putin, that he's hearing from other voices other than from the people kind of that are immediately surrounding him. Um, and I, I think that the role of the United States and NATO and European allies and partners is just to continue kind of the resolute pressure that they've applied so far to continue to provide Ukraine with the weapons that they need to, to, to continue their resistance, to continue the resolute and punishing economic sanctions on the economy. Um, I obviously we're doing things like intelligence sharing. So continuing to support Ukraine on the battlefield continuing with the harsh uh, sanctions. I mean, there's maybe other things that we could start think about doing in terms of, you know, trying to peel oligarchs off of Putin, you know, maybe, um, yeah, you know, I think what we need to do at this point too, with the sanctions though, is to be really clear about how some of the sanctions would be lifted. To me, that's one of the things that's still really missing. And I do think that there are likely some oligarchs and others who might be willing to speak out against the war if it means that the West would unfreeze their assets. I think we need to start being creative about how we can peel some of these people away from Putin. Um, the information piece is another really big thing. I don't know how we do it, um, but clearly Russians are not seeing the same picture of what's happening in Ukraine that the rest of the world is. This is still you know, a special operation. And so to the extent that it's possible, I, you know, I think I had seen that maybe BBC is trying to beam broadcasting in one hour, um, you know, every Sunday or whatever it is, starting to kind of get creative about how we can ensure that Russians have access to information so that they have a more um, realistic picture of what's actually happening. So I guess, you know, that's not the off ramps piece. So I think my answer is it's just about this resolute push back against Putin, but the negotiations to me seem like they're largely a Russia-Ukraine thing at this time. Um, let me close, uh, Mike, with just a, a last question. As we talked about uh, Russian morale among the troops and, and uh, you know, Andrea has spoken about the uh, ignorance of the war among average Russians or, or disaffection with what's happening in, in their own society now. Uh, but what about on the Ukrainian side? You pay a lot of attention to this. I, you grew up in Kiev, I think, uh, for a few years and, and all of this. So this has a personal resonance with you. I mean, there's been um, a lot made of, uh, I think quite rightly, of Zelensky's bravery and spirit. And uh, you see, you know, Ukrainians spending their time training uh, to fight in a resistance. What's your kind of overall diagnosis of where the Ukrainian uh, morale is uh, this far into this very uh, difficult situation? I think the morale of people fighting in Ukraine is quite high. They've done a great job withstanding the sort of initial shock of the Russian invasion. Zelensky didn't flee. He, I think he's doing a really good job kind of performing as a wartime leader. He and his administration are fundamentally the, one of the centers of gravity in this fight. I think that you've seen, if anything, resistance increase, as some suspected it might, and the rise of partisan movements. And you've seen a lot of Ukrainians themselves protest peacefully in towns that Russian forces have occupied. Uh, and, yeah, and all that speaks to the kind of a big evolution that you've seen taking place in Ukraine, particularly since 2014, too. The big things that, that I think Russian leadership got wrong in the country. Uh, I myself am really surprised by Zelensky. I'll be frank. I was kind of a big critic of his, particularly in the run-up to this, because people like me were saying the invasion were come, was coming and felt like people like him really were not taking it nearly seriously enough. But uh, I really, you know, I've obviously come around 
So I think a lot of other people were probably critics of Zelensky as well in the run-up to this for all sorts of things, not just the invasion, but <laughs> let's put it this I think he's a much better wartime leader of Ukraine than he was a peacetime leader of Ukraine. I'll summarize it that way. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's uh that's my short view of it. And one thing I'm impressed is although a lot of people have have left, I'm I get nothing but reach outs day to day from colleagues and friends still in Kiev who are there. They're still there holding down the fort and they want to engage and they want to connect. In fact, that's kind of looking to the right, a number of folks that I know that are that are friends of mine, they're journalists and people who also work work these issues in Kiev, and they're still there. They haven't left. So that's the only thing I can say. That's about it. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mike Kaufman, Jeff Edmonds, Andrea Kendall Taylor. Thank you guys again. Um, we may uh, try to do uh, another one or two or three of these, uh, depending on the course of events. Um, and we're really grateful for your time and expertise today. Um, and we will be back uh, in the future. And thanks to everybody who joined us uh, today for this uh check in on the course of events in Ukraine and uh, what may be coming down uh, the pike here next. Um, thanks to everybody and have a good day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.